So the practice theme for this retreat is Anapanasati. And Anapana means breathing in and breathing out. And Sati is the word that I like to think of as meaning awareness. But what we have here is a combination of something which can be seen as physical of the body and something which can be seen a little more mental of the mind. And it's the meeting of these two. And uh, both of these, both these areas in our life are well worth attention, reckon, understanding and attending to. It was somewhat of a surprise to me to come to realize after the fact, uh, after many years of kind of monastic practice, intensive Buddhist practice here in Japan and Thailand and Burma, that um, all the Buddhisms that I encountered put a tremendous emphasis on the body, mindfulness of the body, being in your body. And um, the, at least the ones I practice in all put tremendous emphasis on the breathing within the body. And much of the monastic training that were outside of meditation uh, seemed to have been designed to uh, get us into our bodies. There was physical activities that we had to be engaged and do it with kind of a wholeness. And um, I did it, the work and the rituals and the things of the monastery just because I was told to. And then afterwards, I only I recognized how much learning I had done through the body, that I, I changed in many ways um, because what you do with your body affects your inner life. What you do with your inner life affects your body. And so putting your body being, you know, in certain positions and postures affects the mood, affects our understanding, our attitudes, all kinds of things can change us. And um, one of the ones that had a big impact on me in the years in the monastery was all the bowing we did. And you know, there was, it was the rule you had to bow. And like you had to bow all the time, seemingly. I once counted how many times I bowed from the time I woke up in the morning till 10 o'clock in the morning. And I forget what it was, but it was some outrageously high number of times. I don't know, 100 times or something? Is that outrageous? And, uh, and, uh, and the saying was, uh, when in doubt, bow. <laughs> but there was so much bowing going on. You had to bow to people when you passed them on the path. So people would take different paths. <laughs> you wouldn't have to bow so much. Here comes someone. <laughs> Go around the building. And, um, but there was all this bowing. And uh, and the, the bowing affected me. There's some, there's something physiologically of putting the hands together in front of the kind of the heart and dipping down. And there's some kind of softening, some kind of uh, you know probably for different people different effects, but some kind of appreciation for me gratitude, maybe a little bit of humility, respect. 
maybe a little bit of reverence maybe that kind of rubs off from putting the body in that posture and um, and it, it had a profound effect on me when you know maybe a funny a strange story after living at Dasahara monastery for about three years I left and um, I was walking down College Avenue in Berkeley and there are all these people there walking on the sidewalk and I, I felt like I wanted to bow to them like we did in the monastery. <laughs> and, and But I felt I couldn't just, you know, bow to people, strangers on the street, that'd be weird. So uh, I felt this, you know, kind of this longing to bow. And, and, and then at some point I saw like across the street, halfway down the block, I recognized someone who'd been to Sahara during the summer. And so I ran up over right after her to stop, stop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I need to bow. <laughs> so, you know, silly story, I guess. But uh, what's not silly was the sense of uh, there was something had moved inside of me emotionally in a profound way and had to do with a certain kind of reverence, respect, appreciation, gratitude that had started to live in me that kind of wanted an expression. And I learned that some things grow by expressing them. It's one of the reasons I bow at the end of a sitting, because gen generally I have uh, a lot of appreciation and gratitude at that point. And, um, and so I, it's a way of expressing it somehow, and exactly how it expresses it, or, you know, I don't, you know, I, c I can't explain so much, but it just, it does for me. So this training through the body, kind of becoming embodied, connected to the body, both in meditation and in activities that we do. And we find in the teachings, the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness, after t teaching the mindfulness of breathing, he taught mindfulness of postures and activities as we go about. So you know, when you're standing, you know you're standing. When you're walking, you know you're walking. When you're lying down, know you're lying down. When you're eating, know you eat. When you're drinking, know you're drinking. When you're putting on clothes, know you're putting on the clothes. When you're showering, when you're going to the bathroom, everything you're doing, kind of list this long thing of thing. Really stay aware, stay present, be connected. And then because the mind and body are not so, or the mind and the body and attention are not so distinct, as we become more embodied, we become more aware. It kind of comes, comes together. And um, and I've come to appreciate that, uh, you know, at least for me, that uh, I have, it's almost like I have two different bodies and two different breaths. I have the body that I have when I'm not aware. And I have the body that I have when I am aware. And it, they're actually quite radically different. I have the breathing I have when I'm aware and the breathing I have when I'm not aware. It's radically different. Uh, with awareness for me, it's not not automatic and certainly took time and practice, but with awareness it's like it comes to life. It, it has a, it's like it becomes freeing or becomes there's space and allowance and there's a freedom for this the body to be. Without awareness uh, it's too easy for tension to build up, too easy for resistance and you know all kinds of bodily things that kind of you know, maybe not so healthy for the body. So to 
live in a body that's aware is, I think, a very significant thing, very powerful thing. It's a kind of a safeguard, protects us as well from some of the other ways the mind can operate that, um, you know, are stressful. Because we have these two things, the body and awareness, and one of the things I'm trying to do here is to uh, emphasize for you that there is this very important thing, uh, awareness, the attentional qualities, capacity for attention we have. And um, it's, I think for many people, it's very hard to make a switch. It's almost like a paradigm switch from thinking life is what we think, think, think that, focus on life as if it's about what we're thinking about versus life has a lot more to do about the awareness with which we touch life with, the awareness with which we receive life and welcome it and are present for it. So a lot of people live what I call about, about lives. Their lives are lives of aboutness. And what I mean by that is that um, if you're thinking, generally people think about something. So if I'm thinking about oh, what's for lunch tomorrow, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about something that's in the future, that's maybe hypothetical. I'm thinking about something which is maybe at this point just an imagination. And it's kind of a virtual reality. And I've spent an inordinate, inordinate amount of time meditating or thinking I was meditating or pretending I was meditating, uh, thinking about menus. <laughs> and um, so, you know, it's, you know, it was about, my, my time was spent about menus, thinking about it, thinking about something. It could be thinking about yourself. Some people, that's their favorite subject for aboutness. <laughs> about yourself, you know, about what happened yesterday, about what I'm going to do tomorrow, about how great I am, how terrible I am. It's all this world of aboutness, something we're thinking about, concerned with. It's which we have objects for our thoughts, concerns we're thinking about, thinking about other people. And, uh, you know, it's all kinds of things that are the uh, subject of thoughts is the world of aboutness, what thoughts are about. And it can seem tremendously important to have these thoughts. In fact, some people only understand themselves in the life they live. The only way they know it is by what they think. They think themselves into existence. They have the concepts and ideas and thoughts about who they are and they need to keep them going. And some people spend an inordinate amount of time fantasizing or having conversations or planning or whatever because it's a way of solidifying or this persona of aboutness. <clears throat> because if you don't keep the thoughts going, then it all drops away. I mean, who are you then if you're not thinking about who you are? <clears throat> so it's very important to keep thinking. And, um, <clears throat> or <clears throat> this is how we become safe is to think about all the contingencies we have to plan for and look ahead for and kind of, you know, worry about. And so we're thinking about the future and all the things we need to do. Or, or we think that only by somehow redeeming the past 
that somehow we can be fulfilled now, so our life is caught up in the aboutness of the past. And so we think that's important. So it's all kinds of things that people, and there's a tremendous authority humans get grant to the world of the thoughts, to this world of aboutness, this often a virtual reality, that that's where solutions are found, <coughs> that's where, uh, you know, we'll be safe, uh, that's where we take care of what we need to take care of, and that's, you know, so we just said authority, this is important. We invest a lot of, some people invest a tremendous amount of energy in thinking about things. But it, it's to, to, for me to keep saying, you know, the world of aboutness, think about things, um, you know, kind of casts a little different perspective on the things we think about that seem so incredibly important. If it's so crucial to think about these things. But no matter how crucial they are, maybe some of them are, but they still belong to the world of aboutness. And you come to your deathbed and someone says, what was your life about? Are you ready to tell them? <laughs> and you list all the things you thought, all the things you thought. <laughs> you, have, you have a long list of things that you were thinking about, the subject of your thoughts, and that's what my life was all about, just thinking those thoughts. And, um, but then there's, uh, so there's also a whole other way of being in the world that doesn't reject thinking, thinking has its place, but there's also uh, this world, what I call the world of attention, or awareness, or mindfulness, or... And um, some years ago, I asked at my Monday night sitting group in Palo Alto, uh, just an open question for the people there, um, how do you know that you're aware? And I, I, w I didn't know what to expect, peop what people would say. It wasn't, wasn't a leading question, I was just curious. And I was surprised by the great variety of responses people had to that question. And I thought, wow, maybe, we, maybe we're, you know, uh, maybe the mental functioning is quite diverse. And what peop different people have different things they associate with awareness. And so when I use this word awareness or mindfulness, I'm very aware that you might be hearing it differently than I think of it or someone else might think of it. And uh, certainly for this retreat, I'm very keen on just making lots of room for you to have your way because I want you to get curious. I want you to be interested and start making that paradigm shift where you switch your focus of your energy, uh, energy of attention, from the world of aboutness to something which is more intimate, more present, which is not about anything, but is a very kind of a, the expression of living, expression of life. Which you know, I think, being conscious, being aware, is often seen that way. I lived on a farm many years ago when I was 21, and I was present for the birth of a calf. And as the calf was coming out, uh, it was somehow still wrapped inside of its embryonic sac. And so the little hoofs and the, and the head were coming out first. But the, this embryonic sac was kind of transparent almost. And the calf had its eyes closed. 
and I looked at it and I said, I, I kind of couldn't tell that it was alive. You know, it's like seeing something that was dead, you know, just kind of just it had the features, but there was no, nothing there. And, um, and then uh, as the calf was coming out, the hoofs, I guess, popped the embryonic sac. And then the, that sac kind of receded somehow. And the head came out into the air. And as soon as it did, the eyes opened. And it was, then I, oh, it's alive, that's life. It was a, and that sharp contrast between something which, suppose it was alive already, but somehow that in my, you know, way of experiencing it, took life that moment, or that, or, the, or, the, or that, the, the sense of that, oh, this consciousness, this awareness, this life, that the thing that gives life, whatever that is, to inanimate material, comes together and does this amazing thing. So we all have it. And um, there's a paradigm shift that goes when we stop giving all the authority for our attention to the world of aboutness, we're willing to kind of back off, back away from it. In Zen they talk about taking the backward step into the this attentional world of awareness of what, what is that like? And awareness can be experienced many ways, as I said, so I don't want to say how it should be experienced for you. But um, um, one interesting kind of feature or way of being aware is to be aware with familiarity. So if you are rafting down whitewater raf uh, rapids, and you've never been down certain rapids, and they're maybe a little bit dangerous, maybe, if you're not careful, you, you will be aware. Chances are high that you're gonna, your awareness is going to be heightened. But you're going to be searching and trying to figure out and guess ahead and think, what's up ahead? And is that, is that ripple in the water? Is that a rock? Or is that a shark? Or is that a just, you know, a current, what is it, you know, and to find your way and try to understand, you know, do I go a little bit more on that side of the river, or on that side, what do I do? And so we're aware, but all this negotiation and figuring going on. But then you do the same river 10, 20, 30 times. After a while, you're familiar with the river. You still have to stay aware. But now the quality of the awareness, or the, what comes along with awareness is very different because you're familiar. And so there's a kind of ease, a kind of naturalness, or a kind of, kind of like, you almost don't have, to, don't, you don't have to think about it, you don't have to figure out and guess and all the time. You just, you know, it's like, it's like oh, just paddle over to the left, paddle over to the right, you know, bounce off that rock, you know, just, oh, you know exactly what it, you know. And you're familiar, and so the awareness has a relaxed, peaceful, settled, some kind of way of being. So the same when we practice meditation, mindfulness meditation, breath meditation, body meditation, all these things, that one of the things we're looking for is that kind of familiarity. Some people, because of we, the way we talk about mindfulness, we're looking for insight, and some people are like boring in, looking to see, you know, the, where's that insight? Am I gonna see that thing, you know? That, you know, you know that's maybe, sometimes that's too much the world of aboutness, that thing, I have to find that thing, that, you know, that insight that we're supposed to have. But one of the things that we're trying to do, in addition to having some insight into things, 
uh, is which also it's very important to have familiarity, real deep familiarity with something like our inner life, our body, our breathing, because then something shifts and changes with familiarity. We get familiar with the territory. We see the dangers, we know where the rocks are, and we kind of, you know, after a while, we hopefully stay connected and aware, but we feel more at ease and relaxed about it. And, and that sense of ease and equanimity and being relaxed is actually a very important part of the furthering, of moving down the river of the Dharma path. To be relaxed, at ease, because we're familiar. And I think, I think, I hope that all of you have been on enough retreats that you're kind of familiar with some of the d dynamics of retreats. You're familiar with that the first day, you're often tired and body hurts and your mind is somewhere else and doesn't want to settle down and maybe even rebelling and and it's just like, so the first time that happened, you, it was like pretty discouraging. The fourth time you went on retreat that happened, you said, oh, this is the first day. I've been here before, I'm familiar with this. It's kind of a drag. But, uh, you know, I just know I have to kind of just, you know, hang in there and stay present and just keep going. And I don't have to fix, and I'm not responsible for fixing this or reacting to it, or I don't need to be ashamed, or just, it's just like what happens. And so we're familiar with the process. And so then the, there's more equanimity about how things unfold. And so there's all kinds of ups and downs that happen on a retreat. And if you go on enough retreats, then, you know, you've been through enough rapids, and you kind of, after a while, just, oh, this is, this is, this is what you expect, and you're, there's a familiarity. With the breathing, to, um, to get so intimate with the breathing, so connected, and so do it so many times, that you're so familiar with it, that, uh, that uh, it kind of comes to life, or, or, it, or it becomes easier, or more relaxed. The tendency to control it, or the tendency to want something to happen, kind of drops away because we're just familiar. It's kind of like, oh, here we are again, my old friend, my old intimate. I think the word familiar comes from the Latin meaning, come from Latin meaning something like of the family. So it has a meaning of some kind of, I think it has some connotations of intimacy, closeness. So what is it like to be familiar with your breathing? Maybe each of you will have a different understanding of what that means, but one of the things it means is repetition. Lots of repetition to become familiar. Lots of over and over and over again to become familiar with the breathing, the body, the tricks of the mind, reactions, responses, all this stuff. I just, you know, that's how it works. Become familiar with it all. And as we become familiar with it all, one of the things we can become familiar with is how we're aware. So I, I'm not, I don't know what awareness is, like I don't know what mindfulness is exactly, but uh, we can be, um, but it's interesting to study whatever way you might be aware, um, well, how you're aware, meaning are you aware um, some people have this sledgehammer approach to awareness, like just pounce on things, you know, look at that. Some people are very tense in their awareness, dutiful, you know, like 
been told to be aware, and by golly, they're going to do it better than anyone, you know, like bore down and do. Some people are rebellious, and so well, I'll, I'll get around to it at some point, or I'm going to do it really my way. No one's ever seen anyone do it as creatively as me, but I'm going to, you know, or, you know, or some people do it hesitantly, or there's fear and we're held back. I don't know. I don't know about this awareness thing. I don't know if I can be aware. Some people <coughs> do it with heaviness, like, oh, it's so much work. Oh, here we go again, more work. Some people do it with a sense of playfulness. Just, oh, I feel so lucky. I get to be in the playground of the Dharma, the mind, and get to explore. And there's all these different options of how we do it. And uh, as we get more and more familiar, one of the very useful things to notice is how are we being aware? Because how we're aware can make a huge difference on the effect of meditation, how it, how it develops. Sometimes the how we're aware is agitating. And, it, and even though we're trying to get settled, it actually is counterproductive because we're so agitated and restless in the way we're being aware. Or we're in a hurry, or we're you know, always kind of expecting something or wanting something or holding something at bay or all kinds of things. As we become more and more familiar with some of how we do it, slowly I think we'll learn to kind of relax and not be so invested in some of the ways that are not so helpful. And some of them might actually drop away and being aware becomes simpler and simpler. And it becomes very simple. You know, one of the ways of defining or describing a very, very simple awareness is an awareness which is equanimous, meaning it doesn't get stirred up or agitated by whatever it's aware of, just equanimous awareness. It might be possible to come be notice how, what degree thinking comes into play with being aware. Some people think they have to think to be mindful, like mindfulness is a kind of an act of thinking. And that's okay, I mean, that helps some people. That's one of the ways it can be done. But there's other ways of being aware besides through the medium of thinking. And I'm fond of uh, examples like, um, if you want to listen to a very faint sound far in the distance, you might close your eyes and you might allow your part of your ordinary discursive thinking mind to get quiet so you can really hear what is that and if you start thinking about what's the lunch menu for tomorrow you probably put that down so you can like listen what is what's that sound and you there's a kind of a, a, a silent listening or silent awareness in that silence, hear the sound. Or if you are, are putting your hand on top of a, maybe your sanding piece of furniture or cabinetry or something that you've made and you want it really, really smooth. And so you put your hand and glide it across and, but you want it so real smooth. You want the slightest little kind of sawdust or anything left. And so there also you might let your mind get really quiet and still so that you have a higher sensitivity in your fingers to feel, you know, is it really smooth? There's a no, 
no dips or no bumps or anything, just really, you know, just a silence, you know, you're having a conversation with someone, you say, just, you stop talking maybe, maybe you stop listening, Shh. you know, to really feel it and be with it. And um, so there are, I think there are times, maybe you have better examples for yourself, but I think there are times in our life where we understand almost naturally without being told that we want the thinking mind to get quiet so we can listen, feel, sense with kind of a silent mind. And so it comes in through the senses. It's registered somehow. And it's a different way of knowing than thinking about something. And some of the potential of sati uh, grows with making space and room for this more silent awareness to flow or to be. And what's, you know, it doesn't mean that we have to stop thinking, but the thinking should become peripheral. So we're not invested in it, we're not involved in it. It's not where the, it's not where the, you know, the action is. If we think the action is in the thinking, that's what, where the action is. But if we think the, the action is not in the thinking. So it, let, it, let it kind of recede background, don't be interested in it. Be interested where the action is in this, this kind of uh, different kind of awareness, different kind of attention within which maybe experiences occur. Or in the senses, in the hand on top of the cabinet in the ears, listening to that faint sound. And um, so kind of, and, and what's nice about this kind of more silent forms of awareness is it very connected to our senses. And the senses, and there's, there's a wonderful aspect, uh, aspect of what's called non-duality, complicated philosophical topic. But what's really I love is that uh, sensing and sensations are non-dual. To sense something and to have a sensation occur inseparable from each other. If I put my hands together and feel the warmth of my palms, I'm sensing sensations. And I can't separate the sensing from the sensations of warmth or vice versa. And there's an intimacy there. There's a, a contact, a location. There's, a, there's something that lives in that contact with the hands right there that I would like to suggest is silent. Silent but very alive very present. And so all through our body we have nerves, sense nerves, that can register all kinds of things in this field and this of silent knowing, silent awareness, silent registering, silent sensing, whatever way you want to call it. 
And so one of the ways that I like to practice mindfulness, if I'm allowed to use that, still use the term, is um, uh, open body awareness. Where I've learned over these times that I practice to be relaxed and at ease within my body, have a sense of openness here, and you know, I've learned a long time ago that, that not to locate my awareness in my head. There's some awareness there, but that's not the center of gravity for awareness. For, I think for some people that's where, it was a time for me that I could only be aware when I somehow knew things in the head somehow. That was the center of the attentional world. But as I practiced, my body became more alive. My body kind of woke up in a sense. And so the, the world of awareness is now much more centered in the body. And so there's a kind of a, uh, openness throughout the body to being aware. And so that openness in the body, then I, you know, it's like this, it's a receptive field within which there are sensations that arise, within which there's the movement of breathing. And so the idea that I don't go out to look at the breathing, I'm not in the control tower, but rather, if I'm going to be aware of breathing, I allow the sensations of breathing to show themselves in this, I like to call it a field of awareness, but to show itself in the body. And as I do this, the body becomes more alive, more vibrant, more present. So in this um, <clears throat> fourth tetrad, the uh, first tetrad, the third step that Inez introduced this morning was um, breathing in and breathing out. One um, is aware, one experiences, the word is experience, uh, one experiences the whole body. And that can be either mean your whole physical body, or it can mean that part of the body that comes into play with sensations as you breathe. So it's usually not the whole body then, but you know, uh, if you're really attentive, you can feel the effect, the rhythmic effect of movement and sensations through much of the torso, the back rib cage, the spine, down into the pelvic cavity, up into the head and the neck. There's all this subtle movement that goes on in shifting and rhythmic sensations. So they just feel the, all of it come and go, move, with a silent awareness to sense and to feel. And then the instructions are to, having done that for a while, we become, when we have, with, in time, in good time, we become aware of the holding and the tensions in the body. And for a long time in my Buddhist practice, because of particular forms of Buddhism I trained in, including Vipassana and Burma, I thought I wasn't allowed to do anything but just be aware. 
But then I learned eventually it, there's no crime to relax. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> and uh, so the idea, you know, to just to, if there was a holding intention and it's easy enough to relax, relax, settle. It's what the body wants to do any, anyway. It will do it if it's given half a chance. It'll un relax and deepen. And there's layers and layers of relaxation that can happen. It's quite something to be with someone who's just died and see how much their face can relax. Because you know, a fair amount of how we are physically and our, even the musculatures of our face are held in place with certain tension, which has its roots in how the mind operates. And if that mental kind of activity of the mind has been unplugged, then before you know, rigor mortis sets in, and these muscles just relax in some deep way. So it'd be nice if you could relax before you die. <laughs> you know, and I think that's the movement that things want to go. The body wants to go in that direction, except the mind somehow holds it in place. So anyway, so part of the practice to relax. And I think it's a great thing. I think having some focus on relaxing, relaxing tension, and being attentive to how we are hold ourselves is a protection uh, from getting tight, straining, building up pressure uh, uh, in the meditation itself. So we find that in this first tetrad, emphasis on experiencing, being aware of the body, relaxing the body. As the body relaxes, uh, that supports the ability to be more aware of the body. The tension kind of makes it more difficult to really sense and feel intimately, deeply. It kind of holds, you know, certain kind of things blocked up or tense. But as we relax, it kind of frees certain energies. And you, know, you can see it kind of dramatically if you've been really tense for a while. Like example I like is if you hold a fist really tight for a long time, and then you let it go, relax it, oh, you feel nice energy flowing through. It's, it's, something's been freed up. And so the same thing can happen when we meditate slowly, slowly, as little maybe micro relaxations happen. We're also then releasing kind of the energy or the flow or the ease or, you know, in the body, the body comes more alive or something. And you know, and as we do that, there's more awareness. More awareness. There's more sensitivity to where the holding is, and there's more letting go. The Buddha put tremendous amount of emphasis on mindfulness of the body. I can't probably underscore how much the Buddha emphasized this. And um, there's in fact there's one whole there's three major discourses having to do with sati. And one of them is, is called mindfulness, the sutta on mindfulness of the body. And, um, 
it begins with the first tetrad, the one of uh, Anapanasati. And then he says, um, as one abides in this, in this way, the, the, with the breathing, um, one's memories and intentions based on worldly life are abandoned. With their abandoning, one's mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. So when you know what are, what are what are memories and intentions of worldly life, um, you know. I mean, I think to give, you know, to make it a little easier for ourselves, to be generous to the Buddha, I think just means all the ways of greed, hate, and delusion that people live with in the world. You know, or the memories and intentions that are behind 95% of what we read about in the newspaper. That's worldly life. And so there's something about practicing this mindfulness of the body that we begin to shift, a paradigm shift, and some of the worldly concerns we have, greed and hatred and aversion, begins to diminish. Now why is that? So in this discourse, the Buddha goes on, after a tremendous lot of emphasis on how important it is to be in this flow, or this fullness, or this aliveness of the body, being in the sense body, let the really kind of settle in and relax in and let it kind of be there. It, um, he then makes these analogies. He says that, um, so first he says, if you take a really heavy stone and throw it against a soft, wet piece of clay, it'll flatten out the clay. It's going to destroy it. But if you take a, um, <clears throat> a ball of yarn and with all your might, throw it against a big, solid wooden door. The door doesn't care. It just bounces right off. In the same way, when we do not have mindfulness of the body, then Mara can come along. He says, Mara. Um, Mara finds an entry in us, finds a support, finds an opportunity with us. And Mara is uh, sometimes seen as these psychophysical forces of temptation, of distraction. The primary ones are <clears throat> craving, aversion, and greed. So, so craving, aversion, and greed get a foothold in us when we don't have mindfulness of the body. And how I understand this is that when the body is, when we're really at ease and rest in the body, sensing the body, feeling the body, it's kind of filled. There's a stability, there's a sense of self-possession, self-mastery, sense of self-awareness, that we're not tricked, we're not pulled into another world. 
But if we're not connected to our body, it's a lot easier that the you know emptiness of body for our thoughts, our ideas, our desires, our greeds to somehow uh, we're not really paying so much attention. We're not resting in a good place here, and we get tricked and pulled into that world. The other example he gives here for this is. Um, if the water jug is empty, then you can come and fill it. But if the water jug is full of water, right up to the brim, then you can't add any more. So if you, if you don't have mindfulness of the body, then you're like an empty vessel that Mara can come along and fill it. Greed can come and fill it and take over. But if you're really present and stable here in this body, then uh, there's no more room for Mara to operate. No more room for greed and aversion to find its way in or find any, have much control or any much to say. The Buddha said, when mindfulness of the body has been repeatedly practiced, developed, cultivated, used as a vehicle, used as a basis, established, consolidated and well undertaken it has um, ten these ten benefits may be expected what ten I'm not going to read all ten but I'm going to read a couple of them one becomes a conqueror of discontent and delight the first part was okay And discontent does not conquer one. One ob abides overcoming discontent whenever it arises. So there's something about the efficacy of being really centered in our body, in our body, connected to our body, that makes it harder for us to get caught in discontent and also harder to get caught in certain kind of delight. I think the delight he must mean here is something that has some kind of greed as part of it. Some kind of attachment. When one has mindfulness of the body, one becomes a conqueror of fear and dread. And fear and dread do not conquer one. One abides overcoming fear and dread whenever they arise. So that's nice. But the next one, does this interest you? One bears cold and heat, hunger and thirst, contact with gadflies, mosquitoes, wind and sun, and creeping things. <laughs> One endures ill-spoken, unwelcome words, and arisen, arisen bodily feelings that are painful, racking, sharp, piercing, disagreeable, distressing, and menacing to life. Wow. This mindfulness of the body is strong stuff. It is strong. But uh, remember how it starts off. I mean, it, it, you have to be, take, get familiar with it. You have to keep coming back and opening to it and learning how to rest and relax into the body and know how to read the body, feel the body, and find it, find it a, a good place to be. And, f you know, and if, if, you know, almost like 
don't limit your sense of yourself to what you think about or to the world of thinking, but open it up much bigger and wider so that who you are in a sense is much more this flow of energy, flow of life that is expressed or felt through the sensations of the body in all the different ways. But not by, I think it's, you know, not by exactly trying in a forceful way, not as a technique. I'm, I've often been, I don't think of the practice we do as a technique that we apply. I think of it more as a, uh, something we open to. So we allow the breathing we welcome the breath, allow the breathing to come into awareness, as opposed to have a technique to go to the breath and study it and explore it. We allow the breath to come into awareness. If we feel something in our body, then we allow that sensation to come more fully into awareness. Let it be there. Not the technique of going there, investigating and studying it so much. That's, that's valuable to do. I don't want to knock that, but, but there's another option too. This other option of kind of sensing and allowing and opening, open body awareness. It starts, to, it, the, the body starts becoming more alive and filled. And, um, and uh, the language the Buddha uses for the body being filled is language like um, steeping, filling, pervading. Steeping, filling, and pervading through the body. Steeping, filling, and pervading this body so there's no part of this whole body unpervaded. When abides in equanimity, here the translation is mindful and fully aware. Still feeling pleasure, pleasure with the body. So what if, what would happen if you assumed that you've never known your body before? You've never really known it. You've never really known it from the inside out. What if you assume that you've never really know what awareness is from the inside out? What would happen if you bring those two together and get to just sit really here? Not searching 
but tuning in, sensing, what is this here? See how still you can become in a soft, nice, friendly way to feel this whole body. And because the mind wanders off so easily, perhaps you can breathe with the body, breathe through the body. The breathing accompanies you, you accompany the breathing. The breathing is, this, is the constant, the thread that keeps you in the present moment. And as you're in the present moment, you can open your attention to feel the wider experience. What is this? And what is it that's aware? How is it to be aware? What way of being connected to your body and breath? What way of being aware makes it attractive to you to want to be present for it? Interesting, more interesting, more attractive than the virtual world of aboutness. Perhaps you might even, in the course of this retreat, get a little bit tired of the world of aboutness. After all, chances are you've been there a long time. It gets kind of old, I would think. But the body, I just find it breathing, the body, with all its challenges it has and pains it can have, I feel like it's a profoundly respectful and fascinating and novel thing, new, to enter into, to get born into this body over and over again. To become born anew. Every time we are mindful of the body, aware within the body.